This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back oh hello there thank you for downloading this is the times red box podcast i am not matt chorley he's still on holiday getting drunk i'm luke jones sitting in uh, we've got absolutely loads for you today we will enjoy disunited kingdom in a moment we'll take you right round uh, the country and hear from uh, the four nations after our columnists today, Robert Crampton, and from the Daily Mail, John Stevens. Have either of you got some bad pet stories, John? Well, I mean, I've got a one-year-old dog. It's less like one big story, more just a constant state of panic. A slowly uh, wearing you down. Well, not wearing my dad, just a worrier. And there's never been one big Fenton moment or anything like that. But there's a reason (laughs) I'm speaking to you from my attic is he can sense weakness and he can sense his moment (laughs) to strike. So any time you're on a walk, someone rings you, it's an important phone call. Then he thinks this is my moment. We'll just go start grabbing the lead, barking, going mad. If I'm on radio or TV from home, he's like, mm, this is my moment. And we'll just start barking incessantly. You might hear him in the background soon. There's less, there's been no, he's never stolen someone's picnic. He's yeah. never kind of run after a child. It's more just the constant state of fear that he will, you know, strike when I'm at my weakest. <laughs> Robert, what about you? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a bit of cheeky cat, Tiger. He, uh... He's very affectionate. I've had to shut him out now, like uh, like John with his dog. Uh, he likes to come and butt in on Zoom meetings. Uh, not only that, he then collapses onto the keyboard, often shutting off the uh, connection uh, as he dis- demands attention. There's a lovely series. There's a lovely series of videos oh. on TikTok of uh, pets which know when Zoom meetings end. So just if they hear yeah, their owner yeah. say, "Thanks, guys. See you later," they know to jump up and yeah. like start. Isn't that lovely? Anyway, we digress. Um, back to the matter of what's all in the papers. Um, let's start with some COVID stuff, first of all. So we see the, the Times and some of the papers talking about um, borders maybe reopening, especially for EU and US travellers wanting to come to the UK if they're double jabbed. But John, also on, on the front of your own paper, uh, one minister telling uh, your colleague Jason Groves that COVID is all over bar the shouting. Yeah, and I think the government's got a slight problem with the messaging here. That on the one hand, they've been quite cautious. You know, the official line after the numbers started coming down earlier this week was we're not out of the woods yet. You know, the pandemic is still ongoing. But behind the scenes, ministers are quite happy. They think that we are 
on the way out. I think one slight problem might be front pages like today's mail front page might come back to haunt them in the autumn and winter if numbers start to go up again, that it might turn out that we weren't at the end of the pandemic. Uh, but Robert, we've even got people like Neil Ferguson saying that the, the bulk of it might be behind us uh, come September, October, you know, accepting travellers from around the world if they've got double jabbed. Do you, are you feeling the optimism of the of the unnamed minister talking to John's colleagues? I hope, well, I, I, I'm feeling it and I'm, and I'm desperate for it because I came back from France on uh, Monday night to enter 10 days of quarantine. Oh no. Uh, yeah, I'm in day two, having had a negative test in France on Sunday morning, and it feels a little bit silly, to say the least, uh, a little bit unnecessary, uh, and much worse than lockdown, because it really is, it's really heavy-duty quarantine. You cannot, you, you can't kind of open your front door. And not, so, to, not to rub not... it in, Robert, but I think you, you've timed it dreadfully, haven't you? Because it's only going to oh, be, yeah. if, if, we're to, if we're to believe the papers today, it's going to be off the Amber Plus list soon, so it's only probably going to be yes, a few weeks right. where it was Amber Plus. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear it might be as soon as today, and I'm hoping it might be retrospective. Uh, in fact, I might behave as if it is retrospective, even if it's not. Uh, <laughs> now it's weird. I got lucky last year in that I got into I got to France uh, in a in a sort of small window when uh, you were allowed to travel and the French were accepting you. And but this year it seems to have gone wrong because even a couple of weeks ago it wasn't there wasn't no quarantine, and then mm. they brought it in, and now they're looking like they're going to scrap it again. So yeah. Swings and roundabouts, but yeah, I hope so. As as for uh, all over by the shouting, I, I mean, I'm I'm thinking. Uh, I think John's right. I think it's all over by the shouting until we get to October, and then it's probably back on again, isn't it? Yeah. But, and also, John. Virus. John, to what extent as well is this a bit of a competition between different countries as well? Um, the Times says that the, the, the Prime Minister thinks that Britain risks squandering its vaccine bonus um, if we don't get going, you know, reopening borders and the like, like other EU countries are. The thinking is that, you know, we're ahead, we should make use of it. Others are. Well, I think it just makes sense that if uh, the vaccine rollout's gone well and we are able to unlock things, forgetting what other countries are doing, if you can reopen businesses and get the economy moving, that's just common sense but I think you know I think last time I was on last week it was talking about how the whole world is watching us how it was this great experiment the big unlocking of freedom day and the other countries on the world were looking to see how it went so so far it seems to be going quite well but you've seen other Mm. countries like Israel and the US who were quicker on unlocking stuff now bringing back some of the measures. So you've seen the CDC in the US now talk about masks again. Israel is bringing in vaccine passports again. And mm. so I think so far it's looking quite good for us. Whether it carries on like that, I think that's the thing to keep an eye on. Let's head over to Tokyo and think a bit about the Olympics. Of course, the, the big news mm. is Simone Biles uh, pulling out, um, saying that she needs to, quote, fight her demons. Uh, she says she's been shaking with anxiety, is going to prioritise her her mental health. Um, Rob, what do you think about this? And what do you think about the, the example it sets to other uh, less well-known athletes? Well, first of all, I think it's tremendously sad. And I, th- I think, uh, secondly, I think there's two issues. Uh, obviously, athletes are under an enormous amount of pressure and we kind of, they're there for our entertainment and we kind of take it as read that they will perform. But going back years, I mean, especially, I mean, just taking gymnastics, I know that from when I was a kid, the big hero, the heroines were Olga Corbett and uh, Nadia Comaneci, and I know they both had problems in later life with uh, 
physical and mental issues relating to their to their uh, uh, their celebrity and their uh, training regimes at mm. a very young age. So that's nothing new. I think what is new about Simone Biles, and this is in, this is in the implication of Michelle Obama's tweet, is that she's obviously been. It sounds to me like she's been subject to uh, the usual disgraceful abuse on presumably racial in nature uh, on social media. Uh, now that is a that is a relatively uh, new thing and uh, if she's fallen victim to that that is just that's just absolutely tragic and it's just another example we had it with the football uh, and the, the guys who took penalties for England it's just another example of how the social media companies have got to take some responsibility for the for the kind of stuff that they're publishing. Hmm. But it's a, there's a marked shift isn't there John though in, in that I guess that someone in someone someone bars Simone Biles' uh, situation thinks that she she can do this like like Naomi Osaka. They can say, "I'm struggling with this, so I'm going to take this decision," and uh, they don't necessarily feel pressured into continuing to the detriment of their own health. Yeah, and you look at people like uh, Emma Raducanu, the 18-year-old who pulled yeah. out of Wimbledon, and she talked about afterwards how the whole experience had caught up with her. Look at Marcus Rashford after the penalty he missed. He tweeted about how he felt and how in the run-up to that, he just had a lack of confidence. That Obviously, I think it's a good thing if these athletes feel they're able to talk about it. The thing I thought was completely amazing with Simone Biles was the press conference she gave yesterday after she'd pulled out of the event and someone else had had to take her place. And she just sat there for several minutes, just answering questions quite openly, being able to talk about how she felt, the mm. impact it had, and the different things that you'd think... Oh my goodness, this, you, the way she spoke with such confidence and such openness was just absolutely amazing. And if people can watch that and think, oh, it is okay to talk about those things, obviously it's a good thing. But one of the things she talked about, the difficulties, was how different the Olympics is this year. And she said it is just different. There's no audience. Obviously, we've been waiting an extra year. She was talking about how that particular event yesterday, they'd been waiting around for hours. And she just said for the first time, she was just shaking in the lead up that she'd never felt like that before. Uh, but obviously, I just think the openness is just quite amazing that just hours after an event like that had happened, that she felt able to come out and talk about it. Yeah. Sure. Um, how are you both with the Olympics? Are you, are you watching it wall to wall, Robert? No, I'm not, I'm afraid, and I usually do. I think this Olympics should not be happening. Uh, and I think it is, I think the absence of fans is, uh, uh, is, is kind of ruining it, essentially. Uh, I can't, it's a bit like with the football last season, it can't, I couldn't quite, I mean, not the Euros, but the, the, mm. the, the Premiership, you couldn't, I couldn't quite engage with it. It looked like a training exercise. And it shows you the uh, the importance of the fans, to both to the spectator and I think evidently to the uh, to the competitors as well. I mean, I'm struck by the absence of uh, there's no don't, don't I don't I'm not not seeing any world records being being set, and people that's partly down to the absence of atmosphere uh, in the in the uh, in the venues. So no, I'm afraid, and also the the, the, the the time difference thing would have been a problem anyway. Well, yes. Uh, I think uh, so. No, I'm afraid this for me. This will be the Olympics that I kind of passes me by. I suspect. Although once it gets into the track, then the, the interest always picks up. Yeah, well, that's always yeah, about that's one of the most entertaining. John, what about you? Yeah. Are you um, are you always somebody who you know, come July every four years is sort of wanging on about discus or whatever? 
Well, I totally agree with Robert. I totally disagree with Robert. I just think when you actually watch it, the absence of the people in the stadium, you don't massively notice it, that you're kind of still quite gripped by these sports. My timing just seems to be awful. Every time I turn, I think, oh, I'll sit down and watch it. And I sit down and there's nothing that good happening. We don't win. We just lose stuff. And then as soon as I switch off, then you get tweets saying that we've won a gold medal. So I've like, missed all of the good moments so far. And that's the point as well, that so many people are, are, are banging on about the, the, the coverage at the moment that on free-to-air television on the BBC, there's not, you know, if you're really into, say, the diving or you're really into um, some of the gymnastics or whatever, you can't watch the, sit there and just watch these events in full, Robert. You have to sort of, you're just constantly being fed snippets of highlights. Yeah, it's not ideal. It's not ideal at all. I mean, sport's been going that way for a long time. I've, I mean, I was trying to watch the... Uh, the uh, the Lions game when I was away in France, and that was that proved almost impossible because mm. it was, uh, you know, it, it just just wasn't wasn't available, and the French weren't playing ball in terms of screening it in bars. Funnily enough, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's been happening. I think it's 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 affected an awful lot of sports over many years. Cricket probably most most obviously, although cricket's now back on terrestrial. I think. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's it, it's not a great watch, and and the and the and, and the time difference is a killer. Back home, I know who, who these people are that are getting up at 3am to go watch uh, the swimming or something. I don't know what they do with themselves during the week, but I, for life, I couldn't manage that. Um, let's take back home uh, an interesting uh, an interesting thought in the paper today. Um, James Kangasorium, the, uh, the policy wonk, writing in the Times today, has an interesting piece about um, why do the Tories win on social issues, suggesting that it's, it's the Tories, not Labour, who are now winning the electorate on social issues with things like um, equal marriage and um, all of that kind of thing. J- uh, John, does that does that ring true with you? As 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 the have the political sands shifted in that way? Well, I think at a basic level, one of the obvious reasons why the Tories have been the only ones to push through things like equal marriage is they've been the only <laughs> ones in power they've for the last there. 11 years. So no matter what policies either side have come up with, it's only the Tories who've been able to push them through. But I think one of the interesting things he talked about was how you're now starting to see Keir Starmer move more into Tory territory. So talking about things like crime, talking about things like defence. And you see that there's already a slight reaction from the Tories. You see they've been quite defensive this week on crime. You know, we're going to have a whole week of Boris Johnson posing with police officers, coming up with headline kind of catchy phrases about chain gangs and stuff. I think obviously the Tories are feeling a slight pressure on that wing, feel they have to shore up support and show they are the ones that are tough on crime. Yeah, but but it's still a strange um it's still a strange state of affairs, uh, Robert, when you know what James writes about in the in the paper is, is the paradox of social attitudes actually broadly moving more and more left and yet voting habits, to take John's point about, you know, the Tories have been in power for the last eleven years, mm. are moving right and right and right. Yeah, I mean he said that Labour's vote gone down uh every time Oh, things that line that to Robert traditionally associated with the left. Robert, that line isn't the best. Um, we'll turn the computer on off again and bang it. Um, John, <laughs> on that point, it is that is an interesting sort of twist in this, isn't it? That sort of voting is going one way, and yet actually, the sort of the, the sort of uh, attitudes are, are moving leftwards always. Yeah, and you think, you know, you look back at Ed Miliband came up with loads of ideas, you know, more transparency around the gender pay gap, the energy price freeze. 
and that they were rejected by voters as a whole. People didn't want Ed Miliband to be prime minister, but then the Tories just went through, hoovered up the bits of their manifesto that they liked and found it easier to sell it to them, sell it to their side than Labour found it to sell it to their voters. Yeah. Um, a final word on uh, climate change. The Prime Minister's climate change uh, spokesperson, Allegra Stratton, uh, tweeting yesterday that we should stop rinsing the dishes before putting them in the dishwasher and freeze bread to help uh, stop the march of climate change. There was um, there was not an enthusiastic reaction. I think it's fair to say, John. Um, what did you What did you think about that? Well, I've got a mission. I. I didn't even know you were meant to rinse the dishes before putting the dishwasher. So that I have been kind of this green hero without even knowing it for the last um, few years. That uh, I think this is a tricky one. That it's COP is obviously this big high level thing. You've got negotiations going on between different governments around the world. We're obviously hosting it later this year, and it's hard for the government kind of to turn it into something relatable that means something to normal people. I'm just not sure they're doing a great job of it because on the one hand, you come out with stuff like this about washing dishes and one half of people say, oh, you're being nanny statey. We don't kind of want to be lectured on these issues. Mm. And then the other side, you've got kind of more green people saying these are just tiny, tiny steps that we need kind of radical action if we're going to stop climate change in its uh, in its tracks. And Allegra Stratton talked about how she might possibly buy an electric car in 10 years' time isn't really up <laughs> to scratch. I wonder if, you know, the government just aren't the right people to be the messengers here. That I think a lot of people are open to taking small steps, you know, using reusable plastic bottles, walking more rather than using the car. I just don't think they want to hear people like Allegra Stratton telling them that message. I think other people are possibly better messengers. The Sunday Times' as James Coney told me on Weekend Breakfast months ago uh, how bad it was to fully fill the kettle if you were just making one cup of tea, and he really laid into him about it, and I've never done it since. So, well, 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 he's obviously... Maybe the government should recruit should him, get him as a climate spokesman, yeah. John Stevens from the Daily Mail and Robert Crampton from the Times. In a moment, we'll take you around the four corners of the UK. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now it's time for Disunited Kingdom. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. <laughs> This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Every Wednesday at this time uh, on Matt's show, we hear from journalists from across the four corners of the UK to find out what's happening. This week, we are joined by political correspondent for Yorkshire Live, Alexandra Rogers. Morning. 
Hi there. Political correspondent at the Sunday Times in Scotland, John Boothman. Hi, John. Good morning. Chief political commentator at the National Wales, Theo Davis-Lewis. Hi, Theo. And from the Belfast Newsletter, their deputy editor, Ben Lowry. Hi, Ben. Good morning. Welcome all. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Alexandra, I'll start with you and let's start with uh, the COVID situation, shall we, in uh, in all your various patches. Um, lots of discussion about whether the pandemic is over. This uh, unnamed minister, which everyone's quoting this morning, saying COVID is all over, bar the shouting. Um, mm. How are things feeling in Yorkshire? Well, I think in Yorkshire, there's there's been a drop in cases uh, steadily as well, reflecting what's going on around the rest of the country. Um, but but what's interesting is uh, is one of my colleagues actually spoke to uh, uh, Sheffield's director of public health, Greg Fell, who said that this this might be an artificial trend that we're seeing here. Perhaps there's less testing going on of children now that now that schools have broken up and just less testing generally. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And I think people in Yorkshire who have obviously really borne the brunt of localised restrictions are probably feeling quite wary, uh, know that the situation can change rapidly and obviously don't want to go back into that dreaded tier system or any kind of localised restrictions. Yes. Um, John Boothman, um, Sunday Times in Scotland. Um, what is happening with the current level of restrictions in Scotland? And, and is the First Minister feeling optimistic that the changes slated for next month will actually go ahead? Yeah, they're feeling very optimistic here. I think we're probably ahead of the curve compared to the rest of the UK. Um, one of the papers saying this morning that was one of the advantages that Scotland had being knocked out of the Euro so early. Oh, really? um, the number of cases in Scotland is down to probably below 10,000 in the past week. It was double that a few weeks ago. Scotland only a few weeks ago was being talked about as the COVID capital of Europe. So things are going down. Um, it's fair to say, though, in terms of vaccinations, though, that they are slowing down too. And what I mean by that is that we're really down to the real hard to get people now. Mm. Um, you know, we're into the last 10% on the first dose and there's big, big efforts, particularly being aimed at young people to do something about that. Um, so, yes, very optimistic here, I would say, uh, moving forward. You know, warnings later of a third wave, wee bit of worry that the schools go back earlier, of course, than the rest of the UK yeah. in about two and a half weeks' time. But nevertheless, I think in a much better place. And what might happen on, on the 9th of August is if every Everything keeps going. What actually will be the, the rules that are, are scrapped? Well, all going well. Nightclubs, for example, will open, um, and that that's that's obviously uh, other hospitality restrictions will be lifted. That's actually quite a good place to be. Mm. Uh, Scotland, of course, has been stricter. Uh, by and large than England and Wales and Northern Ireland in terms of its application of things like social distancing. You've heard me talk many times before about uh, the difficulties that's caused, for example, for the events business, Big Edinburgh Festival, for example, how all of that's been scaled down. So things looking better, as I say, uh, in terms of the next few weeks. Thanks for that, John. Um, let's go to Northern Ireland. Ben, in terms of the view from Belfast, um, John mentioned uh, slowing vaccination rates there, uh, particularly amongst the young, I guess something which is felt by all uh, four of the of the UK nations. But in terms of vaccine rollout in, in Northern Ireland, um, w- what's happening? Ben, hello. Ben, we can't hear you. We may have lost Ben. Ben, are you muted? 
18 months into a pandemic and people I'm, still I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I was muted there. And <laughs> no. I was ram- rambling away. Um, uh, no we, 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 I was rambling away about uh, in Northern Ireland, we have an interesting uh, situation, which was that it's been very political here, um, COVID. Uh, there's obviously been a battle between unionists who want us to follow the UK approach and Irish nationalists who want us to follow the Republic of Ireland approach. Mm. And it has who's doing better so there was the big thing last year that um we were better to be away people were saying from boris johnson's approach and britain was reckless and ireland was doing things better but the one thing that was very good for people who supported the uk approach which most of our readers do were were a unionist paper was that the vaccination program roared ahead of the republic of ireland in the same way that the vaccination program in the uk roared ahead of the um the rest of the eu but actually today and it's happened by stealth uh uh, in recent months, the Republic of Ireland has more or less caught up. Um, we're at levels now where, um, you know, both sides of the border are incredibly high uh, levels of first vaccine, over 80 percent, uh, and uh, very high levels of um, second vaccine at 70 percent. So that discrepancy has gone. And what that implications that will have for our um, easing of restrictions um, isn't yet clear. Northern Ireland has been partly because of the Republic of Ireland being behind in vaccines, been the slowest out of restrictions, although in actual um, uh, fact, when you look at what's happening in Northern Ireland, when you look at day to day life, I think like all of these islands, um, there's not much now in day to day life that doesn't seem like non-lockdown days. Yes. Um, let's go to Theo in Wales, uh, because, of course, the other aspect of all of this, Theo, is uh, the pandemic, which is uh, causing lots of lots of stress for, for employers and employees around the land. Um, what's the situation from your view? Yeah, I mean, like, like Ben was saying there, I think the big story in Wales, actually, aside from the pandemic, is the fact that the vaccination programme uh, is doing very well, actually, in Wales. I think <laughs> we are leading the way, uh, as we have been for several months. Um, from yesterday, I think it was something like uh, just over 2 million people had had uh, their, both of their vaccines, uh, and 2 million, uh, 200, uh, 200,000 had had uh, their first dose of the vaccine. So that's a very good uh, sign of the picture here in Wales that Mark Drakeford and the Welsh Government have done very well there. But of course, like in other parts of the UK, especially in England, the pandemic has put pressure on on council staff and services. So there's been a few stories coming out over the last uh, few days, really, about things like waste and recycling collections, street cleaning, social services, all the things that we take for granted, of course. But there's severe strain on that. So again, it's something to to watch out for over the mm. next uh, over the next few weeks. And of course, there will be a change in the isolation rules in Wales, as there will be uh, for some for some people in um, England as well. So and what about other restrictions, Theo? What's the situation, and, and when might things change? Well, as we've as we've talked before, Luke, I think. Mark Drakeford has always been very cautious and communitarian in the approach that he's taken in Wales. Restrictions will be similarly easing uh, in Wales slightly later uh, than what we've had uh, in England. Uh, So you'll see a a high degree of normality, I think, coming back next month instead of mid-August. But of course, I think what is important to acknowledge amidst all of that, uh, as you've heard from uh, John in Scotland and Ben in Northern Ireland, is that Wales is very prepared to, um, I should say the Welsh Government is very prepared to adhere to social distancing rules, you know, not really just do away with masks. There has been a very obvious difference there compared to what we've seen with the UK government. So back to normality to some extent next month, but I don't think we'll we'll get there completely until the, until the end of the year. 
Let's move on. Let's move away from uh, COVID, get a bit more uh, political. Alexandra uh, from uh, Yorkshire Live. Um, more more headaches over over uh, timetables and, and rail improvements. HS2 headaches. Yeah, that's right. So I'd say a big thing kicking off in Yorkshire at the moment is the uh, is the showdown between the government and the M62 mayors, as they're called, over over woeful transport um, in the north. Um, and I would say, you know, TFN Transport for North meetings aren't usually the most exciting things. But yesterday was quite dramatic uh, because the government's issued issued northern leaders this ultimatum, which is that they either accept uh, this proposed new rail timetable, which reduces train services, or they stick with the current COVID timetable, which also reduces services. And no. if they don't go with the government's option, they have to stick with this COVID timetable until 2023. Uh, so, you can, as you can imagine, you know the likes of Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, Tracy Braverin, they're, they're not best pleased that they are probably going to feel the wrath of the public when there aren't enough trains as people are getting back to work and the economy is going. And I'd say this has echo of uh, the May timetable chaos that we had in 2018 and which we all remember fondly. <laughs> oh, yeah, fondly. No, fondly, not, not the word. Um, and in terms of how uh, sort of local leaders might kick off about it, has that worked in the past? Well, I mean, obviously, you could probably compare it to to the situation with, with coronavirus. You know, Andy Burnham famously sort of standing up and uh, up to the government there and, and, and making the name for himself that he did. But I think it, 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 ultimately, you know, it's it's the government that controls the purse strings here. So so we'll just have to see, really. Yeah. Um, sticking with the, with the theme of uh, rubbish transports, uh, John, in Scotland, um, there's an interesting story about ferry services, which islanders r- rely, on upon, uh, rely upon. Um, still, uh, more and more um, problems there. Look, as you'll know, I mean, Scotland's got a third of the landmass of the UK and many of our island communities depend for essential goods and business and tourism on ferry services. Now, actually, uh, what's been happening over the summer um, is there's been a real summer of misery with breakdowns, delays and cancelled services, and that's caused lots and lots of problems. But Overwritten on top of that is a bigger problem, and that really, and it's a political problem since the SNP came to power in Scotland. Mm. Uh, only five new ferries have been delivered to Calmac, the publicly owned company that runs the ferries. We've now got um, two ferries that are way over budget, um, uh, sitting in a dry dock in Inverclyde. Uh, near Greenock. Uh, They're way over budget, as I say. Uh, We are still waiting to see when those might be finished. Um, And the Times this morning is making the point at the present rate of construction in which one new ship is launched every year, it's going to take 85 years (laughs) to replace the entire Calmite fleet. So it's a bit of a a short-term problem. Uh, You know, we've talked about the pandemic and uh, how that's affected supply lies to places this is a big big short-term problem that's causing issues as i say overwritten by that bigger problem and we are continuing our tour around our disunited kingdom uh, theo davis lewis chief political commentator at the national wales tell us about um well your piece about uh, the need to upgrade the role of the welsh first minister why are you saying that well, as a, as a Jones, Luke, I'm sure you're right behind me in, in this call uh, to make sure that the Welsh First Minister has, has the respect and the status that I think Nicola Sturgeon has. The issue comes from the fact that 
there was you know huge protests, hundreds of people outside Mark Drakeford's private home in Cardiff uh, Central over the weekend. You know these were just COVID deniers, loonies. Uh, South Wales Police have actually said that you know this wasn't necessarily a huge security risk, but it's, I, I actually dispute that. Uh, and the piece today uh, that that I look at. It, comes from that issue saying, you know, the First Minister of Wales does not have an official residence. What happens if we have a First Minister, as Mark Drakeford has said, from North Wales, you know, who will have to live in Cardiff? Mm. That's a logistical issue. And then just, you know, more widely, I discuss the fact that, you know, we don't have the same sort of status, grandeur, sort of gravitas that I think is, is associated with the office elsewhere. I'm just calling for parity, really, as always, Luke, with what is happening in Scotland. I think it would be an important thing for the First Minister of Wales to have that have that respect. And I think the Welsh Government now, because the role has had such a high profile, need to look into how there are the proper provisions for the First Minister, because the scenes in the weekend obviously were terrible, but they also did pose a clear risk to Mark Drakeford and his family, and that's not acceptable. Uh, ben, I wonder what you think about that as being, if you know, if we're looking at the sort of roles of, of first ministers. Theo says that uh, you know, the Scottish first minister seems to get a lot of uh, a lot of airtime, seems to have a lot of gravitas. I wonder how you feel about the situation in terms of the um, role of first minister in Northern Ireland. Well, one of the things about Northern Ireland is, of course, we have effectively joint first ministers. Mm. It's part of Juilliard peculiarities of um, having a, a, a pretty abnormal power sharing system so that we have um, the way it's panned out in, in, in the last decade or more is that Sinn Féin and the DUP um, have to be in power at all times and that's like um, not merely Labour and the Conservatives being in power at all times, it's like um, Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage being in power at all times. So it's a very abnormal system. And um, I suppose the problems of an inbuilt advantage to um, and, um, um, and the status of, of, of being a first minister doesn't really apply in the same way because the deputy first minister, there are two people who get that. The other parties, though it's a five party coalition, um, do sometimes feel that they're shut out from 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 the big two. And in terms of uh, one of the things on the plate of the of the incoming first minister is uh, the ongoing stage about the Northern Ireland protocol. That's still rumbling on. What's happening? Yeah, I, I was talking earlier about how um, if you looked at the um, coronavirus in terms of at the people who said the Irish approach was better and that seemed to be in the ascendant, um, then people who said that the UK approach was better, that has been in the ascendant and it's gone back and forth. Similarly with the Irish sea border, which is um, complicated even for those of us who follow it closely. So if mm. anybody's everybody's baffled by it but um, the Irish Sea border the EU has been supremely confident Um, uh, there's been a lot of upset about it Um, uh, it, and and the EU was saying but this is what Boris Johnson agreed Uh, this was the law Um, this is uh, this is an international treaty it has to be upheld and for a long time the UK and unionists were on the back foot the UK is now, Boris Johnson's government really genuinely seems to be um, saying this is just not working and we are unilaterally changing things if need be um, to uh, stop the level of disruption, which is disrupting things like drugs or will disrupt things like drugs. The border actually hasn't fully fully kicked in. It's, it comes in in a series of stages. And the EU, the latest story today is that the EU is trying to give space to consider the UK proposals. It's quite interesting that 
the normal language of the EU, which is rolling its eyes at um, UK fantasies and delusions, it's not deploying that language at the moment. So it seems at the moment that the UK approach and thinking of the border not working is getting more of a hearing than you would expect. But there's a long way to go on this and unionists want the border to go entirely. Mm. Let's have a look at something uh, a little bit lighter, a lot more lighter than the uh, than the situation with the seaboard between uh, Northern Ireland and, and Great Britain. Um, I'm seeing in terms of the light stories you're all offering up, I can see Olympics, I can see uh, luxury rams, um, humping dogs and hose pipes. Um, let's go for luxury rams first of all. John, this is yours. Um, a ram sells for the same price as a luxury supercar. Look, my interest in these matters usually extends to how much is the price of a Lego lamb to go with my mint sauce and roast potatoes. <laughs> but I was struck uh, by a story in one of the papers this morning in Lanark yesterday at the auction. Uh, uh, a new record was set for a Suffolk sheep when a Salopian ram lamb went for 200,000 guineas. Which I think is amazing, though. I do recall a story from a year ago where a Texel lamb became the world's most expensive sheep again at the Lanark Mark, and it was sold Mark when it was sold for three hundred and sixty-eight thousand pounds. We're in the I wrong mean, job, John. Uh, well, I, I, look, I know nothing about these matters, uh, but I, I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, just that. You know, well, obviously these the, these lamb these lambs are basically sold in order to breed. At the end of the day, um, and I, I, it just jumped out at me that story in the paper this morning. Uh, at the same time that you could buy a Lamborghini uh, for two hundred and ten thousand pounds, Lamborghini, get it? Indeed. <laughs> um, Alexandra, move us on to. Um, the Olympics. Um, there was a, a time a few days ago where uh, someone had put on the uh, scoreboard where actually Yorkshire would be if it were a competing nation, and it was doing quite well. It was like fourth or fifth, wasn't it? It was, it was actually it was actually eighth, but still oh, pretty good. And still we've, good. We've got we've, we've got a lot further to go. Actually, there's I think there's twenty uh, athletes from Yorkshire competing uh, in the Olympics, and four of them, by my calculations, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, have won medals mm. um, and, there's, and there's plenty more to come. And um, yeah, I mean, Yorkshire have great form in, in doing well in the Olympics. I think in 2016, uh, Team Yorkshire won 14 medals for Team GB and in, in 2012, it, it was 12 medals. So hopefully Yorkshire can continue that winning streak. And tell us about somebody who may be popping up at some future Olympics. Um, it's this 11-year-old schoolboy and uh, what, what he's doing to, to protest against climate change. Yeah, so uh, Jude, who's a uh, who's a uh, schoolboy, is walking two hundred. Has already set off on his journey, uh, two hundred miles from Hebden, Hebden Bridge to uh, to Westminster to to protest against climate change, and um, he, he's trying to pressure the government into implementing a carbon tax. So, uh, future Olympian or potentially a future politician. That's a long old way he's going. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, hats off to him. Hats off to him. Thanks for that. Um, Ben, let's go to you uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, a story which I don't understand what it says here. Just uh, Northern Ireland never runs out of water, but they nearly had a hose pipe ban last week. Yeah. So what was happening there? Well, well, look, this is called disunited kingdom. One thing that we're united um, on is we all grumble about the weather. Mm. But 
I, I did I did live in the 1990s in the southeast of England. And um, while the weather in southeast of England is not great for much of the year, in four months of the year, sort of the, the wider summer, it is markedly better than Northern Ireland. And, and when I moved back to Northern Ireland, I remember as a young reporter in 2003, 2003 was a very hot year. It was the first time um, England, I think, had broken 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, for those of us who still remember Fahrenheit. Um, but in Ireland, I did a story about our water levels when you were completely parched. We were something like our reservoirs were still 60%. It's so wet and miserable here that we never run out of water. But actually last week, we almost did. Um, we were, um, and we, we shattered our heat record um, three times within a week. Um, uh, in, in 30, 31, 30, um, 31.4 Celsius. And we were right on the verge of a hosepipe ban. But um, I, I think we passed St. Swithin's Day uh, recently, and Northern Ireland yesterday was a St. Swithin's Day type deluge that certainly where I am in Belfast began at about two o'clock in the afternoon. And after midnight, it was still raining. And I've actually had to come into another room here to because I normally work in a room where you can hear the rain overhead. Mm. So in really making up for... Um, the gods have jumped in and said, this is not Northern Ireland weather and we're returning to normal pretty rapidly. There's even been flooding in places. Um, let's move on to uh, Theo, your final pick. Um, the Prime Minister and his dog. He adopted the dog from a, from a Welsh charity and now, um, well, he's proving a bit of a handful. Yeah, that's right. And this is um, the story about Dylan, which obviously in Welsh is follow. Um, so there's only there's what, at least one Welsh follower for the Prime Minister. Uh, and the problem at the minute is uh, that Dylan is essentially having lots of these romantic urges, apparently. I'm not sure if it's a Welsh thing, uh, but having these romantic urges on people's legs in Downing Street. So I don't know. There's a lot of affection going on from Dylan. And I, and I do feel sorry for this dog. I'm not a massive animal lover, but this dog has had a really bad press. All, for months, you know, getting involved in all the sort of the, the, the political relationships, all the trials and tribulations of the competing factions in Downing Street. And it seems as if it's just letting off some steam, clearly, Luke. And it's really just... Well, needs... steam and much else besides. Yeah, I mean, we just... I mean, I wouldn't want to be in Downing Street when Dillian is obviously being let loose. But, yeah, it's um, it's a very interesting story. Again, that there is some fascination with this pet. And um, obviously, I'm very... I, I, I'm very affectionate about it simply because it is from a Welsh charity. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it is a very, very interesting, funny but story. But people love a naughty... Uh, pet story. Anyone uh, around the table, around our uh, radio table today, have a particularly naughty pet or know of naughty p- pets? People were texting in earlier talking about some like truly like awful cats that you think just get rid. Anyone? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> um, all right, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks all so much. I appreciate your time this morning. Um, Alexandra Rogers, uh, political correspondent for Yorkshire Live. Uh, John Boothman, political correspondent at the Sunday Times in Scotland. Uh, Theo Davis-Lewis, who we heard from just then, chief political commentator at The National in Wales. And uh, Ben Lowry, who is deputy editor at the Belfast Newsletter. Off, there we go, disunited kingdom. Uh, that is it from today. Thank you very much for downloading. If you subscribe, it goes up your phone uh, without you even having to think about it. I'm Luke Jones, uh, sitting in. You can find me on the Twitter at LukeJones03. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.